Wings and beer, almost as good as podcasts. That's why Chicago Summer Wing Fest wants to give listeners a free t-shirt when they buy tickets with the offer code podcast. Available at wingfest.net. That's W-I-N-G-F-E-S-T dot net. It is the Dynasty Podcast Panelcast Series, featuring industry panels recorded live throughout the city of Chicago. My name is Haima Black. I host this podcast at dynastypodcast.com. This week, a live panelcast featuring Jimmy Chamberlain of Live One Inc. and Greg Corner of JBTV, recorded live at JBTV for the City of Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events Creatives at Work series. Here's how that sounds. Uh, welcome to Creatives at Work, how streaming is impacting the music industry, uh, produced by DK's Arts and Creative Industries, the music office, uh, in collaboration with Chicago Music Commission and Dynasty Podcasts and JBTV, which is where we are live right now. My name is Haima Black. I host Dynasty Podcasts at dynastypodcast.com. Uh, joining me tonight are two fantastic panelists, Jimmy Chamberlain, of course, known for his work as a longtime member of the Smashing Pumpkins, and currently CEO of Live One Inc., which is an interactive streaming media company. Is that a good description? Uh, yeah, for now it is. Okay. All right, we're going to get more into it. And Greg Corner here, well-known in Chicago as bassist of Kilhanna, a longtime DJ all around the city, and of course, repping here, music director at JBTV. How are you guys doing? Pretty good, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I would say it's good to be here, but I'm always here. <laughs> Greg, you live here. This is your Overlook Hotel. Good to be here again. <laughs> um, so I know I gave you guys a really brief intro, but let's have you guys kind of provide some background and what it is you're currently working on, you know, whether it's Live Inc., JBTV, and how it relates to streaming. Uh, sure. So, um, yeah, obviously uh, most people know me as a drummer for Smashing Pumpkins. Um, I left the band in... Uh, think 2009 or 2010 uh, and took some time off uh, but as I started to get bored I started to look at the tech space in Chicago <clears throat> and started to see a lot of the uh, parallel dynamics that were um, certainly consistent with the music business in the 90s um, a lot of creativity um, a lot of culture and I started poking around uh, a little bit first primarily as an investor in the space and kind of got roped in uh, to the excitement and then um, I was invited to sit in an investment round for a company called Live One. And when I saw their product, uh, their crowd surfing product, um, it took me right back to kind of the 90s or, or well, I guess 20, 2005 when the Pumpkins uh, first started looking at live streaming as a potential revenue source. I came on primarily as an investor uh, early on, uh, started coming to the office more and more. The, the board brought me on as director of partnerships first just to bring my kind of Rolodex and my connections to bear for the company. And then um, I think it's been uh, almost two years ago, they asked me to come on board as CEO. So just briefly, Live One is a, um, <clears throat> our core product is called Crowdsurfing. It creates uh, social ecosystems around live stream video. Um, it wraps uh, any live stream video on any player uh, with an audience of uh, thumbnails that you can click on. You can do social discovery. You can create conversations one-to-one, one-to-group. He facilitates non-disruptive advertising in the widget, and we also gather data on the experience on the back end and deliver it to our partners. So it's not, <clears throat> at, at this point, it's still not very, uh, not so much a user-facing application, but more of a B2B solution for people that do have live stream, uh, live stream um, content. So that's pretty much, so we don't do, we don't handle content. We simply wrap content with social ecosystems. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I I'd top that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like Jimmy, I, I came from a band not as big as Smashing Pumpkins, but uh, uh, I was in a band called Kill Hannah. And, That's like, not what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we stopped touring probably, I don't know, 2000. Hardcore, we probably stopped touring in like 2010, 11. So then I kind of had more time um, to dedicate to something. I'm, I'm already a DJ, DJ around all around Chicago. And um, so I wanted to curate something. And I've been friends with Jerry Bryant, the owner of JBTV, uh, God, since 1997 when I first got in the band. Uh, he gave us our first exposure on TV, like many artists. Um, and I came on board to kind of carry on that tradition of giving, um, you know, bands their kind of first start. Uh, you know, mostly in indie, alternative, that kind of world. But we are opening up JBTV to, you know, hip hop and um, country and you know we're even starting to work on a comedy series now a uh, comedy pilot um so a lot of that is being live streamed um through jbtvmusic.com 
And, uh, you know, all our content is on demand, of course, as well. So, I mean, that's how I kind of got in the whole kind of streaming world. You know, uh, Greg, specifically with JBTV, how did that really change just how everything works here and, and how, you know, you guys were reaching an audience when everything started to go really digital? Because it was not always that there was this wealth of videos and there was the live stream of the live sessions and stuff. JBTV did not always have as much of a digital presence. Yeah, I mean, it's it's becoming, I mean, just it's, it's technology, you know, growing and everything. And, and people want to see it on their terms. You know, like TV, it's like tuning in at a certain time. And even if you have a DVR and everything, you know, people want to watch it when they want to watch it. Um, so, I mean, I think that's why our archive um, can get a lot of hits and stuff like that because, you know, people can watch this on, on their terms. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for both of you guys, how has your past experience in the music industry prepared you for where you guys are now, whether, you know, it is Live One or JBTV and, and everything you guys are doing, you know, because you guys really came from the artist side initially, and now both of you are so much more active on kind of the industry side. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, I think, well, primarily uh, for me, um, you know, being an artist with such a kind of storied, I guess is a good word, career, um, and having stood, you know, next to every kind of inflatable beer can known to man uh, on every festival stage, um, and really, you know, many, many different um, you know, uh, physical environments, uh, what you start to realize after uh, after your ego starts to subside is that, you know, these things, these events are really products of their environment. And really, like, a bad show in a bad environment is still a bad show, but a bad show in a great environment can be a great show. And it's really the people um, that become part of that kind of visceral experience that really validate uh, and give credibility to the experience. And I would always, I, I always tell this story, like, when, even when we were, at the top of our game kind of playing, you know, well, United Center or, you know, any of the bigger places in Chicago, it would never fail that somebody would come up and say, oh, you know, I saw you guys at the Unicorn in Milwaukee, um, you know, and uh, it was the greatest show of my life. And I'd be like, <laughs> uh, I remember that show. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I remember that show. And I think, uh, you know, the owner shot somebody uh, <laughs> stealing a television out of his van. Greg probably remembers that story. And then uh, they ran out of beer, and then the sound system went out, and the ceiling caved in, right? But somehow this guy, through the communication, or he'd say, like, oh, I met my wife that night. Like, he'd be like, wow, really? Um, what kind of marriage is that like? <laughs> still married? She was stealing uh, a TV. Yeah, still married. <laughs> um, but, but really, what you start to notice, and again, like all kidding aside, is really these things are environmental, and I think you see in the current uh, in the current architecture around uh, live music, it really is the environment that almost you know, supersedes the content at times. Um, if you look at Coachella. Uh, or Lollapalooza, these big events are selling out before they're even announcing uh, who's playing. Uh, so, you know, Greg and I could show up with a couple banjos and sell out Coachella because they never have to announce our names. Nobody would even know. It's um, the brand. So, so, so we look at, you know, we look at uh, digital content in much the same way. The content in and of itself isn't part, is part of the experience, but not holistically all of the experience. It really is the communication that Greg and I can go to a show, but it's really him and I talking about a guitar solo or a drum part or a song that really validates and creates that environment in which the art can be successful much like you know a painting becomes you know a part of your life once you contemplate it and you have a discussion about it painting on in and of itself is just still a painting and although it may be a great painting once a human being starts to contemplate it it starts to take on a different kind of value so we try to look at that as analogous to, you know, the types of solutions that we're creating uh, for live stream and uh, pay-per-view uh, and video uh, on demand as well. That, you know, the environment uh, is often overlooked as it, as it was early on, uh, even back to, you know, Bill Graham kind of inventing or, or, or the, being the first one to really pony up for excellent sound around, around a, a live event. And, and all of a sudden, what was kind of a, an afterthought became a must-have, where you had to have premier premium sound to play to 20,000 people. And if you look at those old concerts of, like, Crosby, Stills, where they're playing, playing a stadium and the speakers are real small, nobody can hear anything, you know, it, really is, um, it really is about the environment. So that's, you know, the one thing 
thing that I've that I that I've learned primarily, and then I won't continue to blather. But secondarily, what I've learned is that you know digital cultural movement is very akin to what happened in the '90s. Certainly, when Greg and I, well, mostly me and not Greg, was very much very a lot younger. I, than I was I. going to your shows. Yeah, yeah, he was he was sneaking in um, uh, with a fake ID. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, but you know there was a cultural movement attached to music in the '90s that was really you know it was really relevant. And in order to participate in the culture, you had to kind of have the Nirvana record or the Pumpkins T-shirt, and that was really, you know, you're kind of right. It was kind of a rite of passage. You had to see the video in order to have things to talk about. You know, now digital is kind of taking on another kind of mini cultural movement, and really, there's, you know, we see it in social media, especially where you've got to be kind of up on things to kind of be part of the conversation. So we try to latch on those uh, types of metrics and algorithms to create, uh, you know, uh, a better, more successful product. You know, not to, because I know Greg's going to give Sorry, his answer. Someone made, and no more long-winded answers. <laughs> but it's just really interesting, Jimmy, because you're, I mean, you're so right on. Like, if you turn off your phone for an hour, if your phone dies for an hour, and then you turn it back on, it's a different world than the one you left oh, an man. hour ago. Right. You might miss, you know, Taylor Swift and Kanye West made out on stage or something. But you might, you I know, in an instant. Miss you miss that. Yeah. <laughs> you miss these things that happen online in an instant, and all of a sudden, like, you walk into a room, and, you know, people will be like, you haven't heard about this? And you're like, I didn't have my phone on for seven minutes. And all of a sudden, the dynamics change, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, that, again, you know, things get more and more compressed, and, and, and time, you know, is explained to me as somebody who's, you know, I won't say my age, but I'm pretty old now. Um, you know, that it becomes, you know, from a from a fractional standpoint, it becomes less of your life, you know, a day, a week, a month, and you'll start to experience in that later, my friend. Um, <laughs> I already am. But, I already but, am. but you see how how the days, you know, due to digital communication, the days can quickly get away from you, and if you don't feel like you're on top of it, you feel like, geez, it's all kind of slipping through my fingertips, and now I've got to spend my whole evening kind of catching up on what I didn't get this afternoon. Yeah. Uh, so, Greg, kind of going back, you know, how did your experience, everything that you were doing before, really prepare you for, I mean, you know, uh, the music directing job at JVT, but also, like, moving into digital, moving into archiving, moving into streaming? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, coming from the band side, I, like, kind of only knew about the artist side of things. And then when I got onto the other side, I started reaching out to all the people you know, some that I did business with and before with Kill Hannah, but uh, from a different perspective. And I learned a lot of things that I didn't know before uh, about the business and about money. Um, and it was kind of shocking when I was like, what? We have to pay to show your music video on TV? Like, I didn't even know that, you know, like from a band side. So, you know, when I got here and I was like, you know, requesting music videos from like really baby bands, um, a lot of labels are like, well, do you have a deal in place with us? I'm like, to promote your artists? Yeah. that no one's ever heard of and play your video? Yeah, do you have a deal in place? Uh, no. We're like, oh, well, we can't give you a video unless we have a deal in place. So I was like, wow. So that's like something that I had no idea about, you know? That's just one of the things. Um, there was, a, you know, a, a bunch of other things that I, I did learn and, uh, you know, being in a band didn't prepare me for. But definitely coming from the artist side, I know pretty much what an artist is going to be comfortable with when coming into JBTV, and I try to make it as comfortable as possible for artists to come here and perform, um, and Jerry does too, you know? Um, the band is always first um, yeah. at JBTV and the artists. So. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, for both of you guys, as innovators and entrepreneurs in, in tech and media and culture, you know, what kind of opportunities does live streaming really open up, especially in the music space? You know, for somebody who maybe doesn't have this experience and is listening to this or watching this or whatever, and they're thinking like, okay, well, why do I care about live streaming? What would you tell them? Yeah, sure. Well, I think, you know, uh, the, the early money on live streaming was really um, kind of back to the, um, to the, to the Blackhawks theory of that it was, you know, oversaturation of a market was going to impede uh, live ticket sales. Um, and we all see, kind of, we all saw kind of where that went with the blackout of the Blackhawks games, and then the low attendance, and then Rocky coming in and kind of salvaging that, putting all the games on TV. And I just, I went to the Blackhawks game last night, and it was, you know, sold out. I mean, and I, you know, believe me, I know how I personally know how hard hard it is to sell at the United Center, um, and to see, you know, every every game sold out is just uh, an incredible uh, marketing. Um, <clears throat> marketing victory for those guys, and it doesn't hurt to have a great—I mean, a great team, right? But, um, but anyway, um, 
you know, we look at we look at the market now, video market, as you know, another another uh, another way to engage your fan. And really, if it's done correctly, it can take a regional event and make it national, if not international. And you can really start to create uh, a marketing or a business card for your brand if it's done successfully. If it's done unsuccessfully, and you know, uh, Billy and, and and Irving Azoff and I had a conversation about one time about uh, broadcast versus live stream and kind of what it does. And it was another kind of uh, turning point in my, well, well, it had a lot to do with my opinion of live one uh, crowd surfing when I saw it because, you know, unlike broadcasting, like broadcast television, people have a evolved an environment around TV uh, consumption for 40, 50, 60 years. So when you watch something on television, you've created an environment, right? You've got your couch, you've got proximity to a kitchen, you've got kind of these accoutrements that you can go and get, and it's a, an ideal uh, environment for marketing. When you watch a live stream, it's like you're watching it on the phone. I mean, it's absolutely, you know, if it's done incorrectly, it can be, be a real brand devaluing experience. And that's why, you know, community is so important. Word of mouth is so important. There's got to be, like any show, if there's no impact, there's no impact, right? So if you do a live stream and you can have the greatest production, and we did this with MySpace where we flew, you know, everybody and their brother to Madrid and filmed it, and it was great, and it was an idealized version of a concert. Everybody, we had time to get everything right right and everybody watched it by themselves so it was like the brand value just went down because now everybody's just staring at your nose in hd and the sounds like crappy coming out of crappy speakers it's like that's not like the pumpkins brand you know our brand is like people you know flying over the stage and you know out of tune guitars and broken drumsticks it's like you don't really rock and roll are you talking about a rock and roll that's right <laughs> you can't really get that through the screen so you know we look at like community building on digital as a real critical piece of the puzzle um, yeah. <laughs> what was the question again? <laughs> well, you know, uh, like, I guess what kind of opportunities does live streaming open up, you know? And again, like... I mean, I mean like, from, from a band perspective, it could be exposure. Yeah. Um, it could be another stream of revenue. Um, however, that's been definitely challenging, I think, for anybody doing live stream is finding a way to pay for it and actually make money, um, which I think has been challenging for the producers and the artists um, in general. From just live streaming concerts or you know everything like that, not the music side. So I mean, yeah, but I mean the if if you got on like you know a Coachella or you know a Lollapalooza that's live stream, it could be exposure because you're sometimes forced in order to watch the next band that's on, you're forced to watch you know a band that's playing on a different stage. So yeah, it could give exposure to a band. Well, you know, I mean, let's talk about. I know we're kind of more talking about spot, uh, live streaming, but let's talk about Spotify for a second. You know, when you see the other side of streaming, when it, as it relates to like a service like Spotify or you know RDO or these kind of like music streaming sites, is there some level of conflict you know within each of you because you understand the artist plight of it, where they're not getting paid a lot of money, but you understand the value of the exposure as well, or kind of where do you fall on that side of the debate? I mean, it's kind of hard because it's like. You know, I think in, in 2008, the music industry went through a really big shift to just like the rest of the world. But the rich bands kind of didn't get richer, but they stayed afloat. The, the poor bands got wiped out into poverty, and the middle class bands, like my band, got wiped out into poverty too. It, it became really hard to tour, you know, off just, you know, playing live shows. And, you know, as a band, when you sign a record deal, it's like you usually, when you do that, it's like, oh, I'm never going to make money off of selling a record. It's everything outside of that, you know? Um, I mean, the deals were probably different, you know, back in the day in, in the 90s, but, um, you know, in the 2000s and stuff, the, the deals weren't, you know, that wasn't why you'd sign a record deal, it was more for exposure. Um, but as far as Spotify and everything like that goes, I think if, if, if everything is just transparent um, and you know where the money is coming in and going and what the record labels are getting, what Spotify is getting, what the artist is getting, I think everyone would be a lot happier. But it's not, and you don't know who's taking what and where the actual money's coming from. You know, like just from plays and everything and, and are the advertisers getting what they want out of Spotify? Are they getting the exposure they want? I don't know, because it's like the same on our end. <clears throat> You know, to try to sell these sponsors onto a live stream, it's been challenging because they want to see their numbers. So I know kind of what Spotify is going through too, um, as far as like, you know, there's not enough money to go around, and the labels want more money, and the artists want more money, but the consumer doesn't want to pay for music. Right. You know, so where's the money coming from? You know, it's like, you know, the artists are, are, are you know, bitching about the labels and, and Spotify, but 
in actuality, the consumer doesn't want to pay for it. So right. no matter what format. It's in. Yeah, no matter what format. Yeah. You know, I mean, except for vinyl, you know, there's still a small vinyl contingency, and those are for the collectors <clears throat> and you know people that really love music and, and collecting something, you know, a yeah. physical product. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, it's such a long answer. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's my not my new answer. Um, yeah, no, I I tend to agree with that. I think um, you know Greg's right. I mean, there was a there was a precipitous drop in in anyone's ability to you know foment some type of business strategy post two thousand eight just because the economics just weren't they didn't make sense for anybody. And I think Spotify, you know, I think the jury's still out on that stuff. I think, um, you know, record record companies are never going to be transparent, at least in, in, in probably in our lifetime. You know, having uh, suffered through many, many uh, renegotiations and re-ups and licensing and copyright, um, you know, contracts, I think it's interesting to see, like, what happened with Vivo, right? I mean, you see that's a perfect example of kind of how the record companies rule the roost, where they've got a vehicle, um, you know, and, not, and Rio, you know, did a great job with that with that company. And, and certainly, you know, there's tons of visibility on there. It was a great place to go see videos. But once you tried to make sense out of the economics, you realize that the record companies, they weren't going to bet against themselves because now, they, now they're actually paying themselves to license their own videos, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like the perfect storm. It's like just turning the phone around and going, hey, do we have a deal? You know, yeah, yeah. we got a deal. Okay, great. <laughs> What's the rate? Yeah. Um, you know, and it's a bit like that with Spotify. I think for us, you know, the Pumpkins, we had, you know, some big songs, obviously. And, um, you know, we continue to uh, sell uh, records just because more and more you know young people continue to discover us but you know it's been tough for us as well I mean I think you know that certainly the um, the net uh, that we were seeing in the 90s is nothing like we're seeing in, in 20, 2015, um, although, you know, those revenues are starting to go up. And I think, you know, uh, Greg's got a great point. As long as there's transparency, there's a business there. When there's no transparency, there's no business there, only for the guy who's making the deal, which isn't the artist. Uh, one thing else I'll say is that, you know, we uh, in the Pumpkins, and I know Greg and Kilhanna had a great uh, business mind as well, but, you know, we took great pains to understand kind of what we were getting into, and really we read a lot of books. We were kind of, you know, in that respect, ma master of our own destinies. And, you know, by the end, I felt like, um, you know, when I left the band, having had, you know, some great managers and some great opportunities to learn from everybody, from, you know, Cliff and Peter uh, to Irving, you know, just some real heavyweights, Elliot Roberts, um, I felt like I had a pretty good grasp on it. Um, I will say that until, you know, artists come to the table with their own business plan and, a, and, and demanding a seat at the table, they're still going to be beholden to these anachronistic deals that were set in place, you know, way before their time. So I think there will be or there can be a time where artists can come together uh, in unity and not uh, like a Scott Walker union type of thing, but like with a with a cogent idea of what the product is and its value and then demand that value in return for its use. And I think that's really the only thing um, that's going to get these, you know, streaming companies to, and the record companies to turn around. Because, frankly, if we don't play our instruments, there's no music, yeah. right? Nobody seems to have figured that out yet. So, you know, quick aside then that really inspired by what you're saying, Jimmy, you know, because both of you guys came from, from the musician side, came from being on stage to being... <laughs> kind of, you know, behind desks or behind, you know, laptops, like, you know, being more on the business end of things. How can other artists who haven't made that jump, and I'm not saying that they have to stop being musicians, but how can artists educate themselves? How can they become savvier, more informed about, you know, streaming and all these other aspects? I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's, it's something that you want to do. It's something you have to do. If you're in a band now, you have to do everything. You know, you have to be a manager, you have to be a promoter, you have to be able to sell records on your own, you have to be able to play live shows on your own, you have to be able to design your album cover, if there isn't even an album, you know, um, be able to get it up on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever, on your own, you know? I don't think it's something that you have to learn that if you're going to be in a band in 2014 or 15, sorry. <laughs> I know, right? And you have to know what year it is. So that time thing, I'll be doing right? that for a year. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even in a band in 2014, you know, you got to do that. I mean, you have to. I mean, like, I was forced in Kilhanna to learn everything. We ran, you know, we made our own merch. We designed our own merch. We designed our own T-shirts. We designed our own album covers. We distributed it our own. We did all this before we had a record deal. You know, we went on tour. We did everything, you know, and, like, that just prepared us. When the bottom dropped out, we still knew how to be a band without somebody helping us, without a manager, without a label. We could do it all on our own, and, it, you know, you have to do that now. Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, serious though, I think Greg's right. I mean, I think one other thing though that gets overlooked in that, and I did a I did a panel in San Francisco on music and tech. Uh, again, uh, yet another panel. Um, <clears throat> but you know, some kid or some young artist was asking about you know, social media strategy and this and that, and you know, how many fans should I meet backstage and blah blah blah. And this whole thing like went on and on and on, and everybody on the panel was just going, "Yeah, you gotta, you gotta connect with your fans and blah blah blah." And I was like. Man, you gotta write a great song. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, That's always like at the bottom yeah, of the list like, now. Hey, there's a novel concept. Uh -huh. Write a hit song, right? Then you don't have to talk to anybody. Trust me. <laughs> and the bigger you get, the bigger you get, the more it becomes less about music and the more about the business and like running the band or being an artist. I mean, as a solo artist, I don't know how you could do everything now. It's gotta be really challenging when you're kind of by yourself putting together a band, paying for the band to go on tour, and then like running your social media and your like all the, I, I don't know how one person can do it all. Yeah, I think that's, an, that's another great point. I mean, yeah. music, you know, for me anyway, like the, the last kind of couple of years of the Pumpkins, it got to be where, you know, all of those things that Greg is talking about really came into conflict with why I played music yeah. in the first place. And really, you know, what's the goal here? And, and I think, you know, when you start to play and you put in that kind of time, you know, six hours a day on an instrument and you're going, you know, you're trying to summit, you know, this unsummitable mountain, you know, you start to lose um, perspective when all that stuff gets in the way of that kind of sacred contract that you have with your instrument. And now I'll say, you know, now that I'm a corporate suck-up uh, CEO, <laughs> I can go and play my drums like I used to play when I was eight years old. I mean, I can go in my studio and play with no agenda, and it's just a beautiful relationship with an instrument that I've got, you know, no scar tissue attached to. But as soon as you, like, attach that uh, wagon to your music nice. business, you know, you bring all that scar tissue with you and you start to, you know, for me at least, the music was like, man, it started to feel kind of real, uh, it's hard real to be greasy. Creative. Yeah, it's hard to be creative in that kind of environment. Uh, you it know? really it's, is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, that's why, you know, I was, I was, I remember in, in 2008, one of our last like full tours with the band, you know, talking with the rest of the band members, I'm like, man, is the future of music just going to be rich kids that can afford to pay people to do all these things for them? Because for, to be creative in that environment, when you have to do all those things, it's so challenging, you know? And your bandmate was like, yeah, yeah, have you seen my astrologer? This guy's late again. <laughs> well, I think that's important to have a band, because, like, if you assign everybody in the band to do a different project, then maybe it can be balanced and you can all find time for creativity and it's not overwhelming, you know? Yeah. Uh, what are some success stories in... Man, it's freezing in here, right? You wore a coat. It's like, you, it's like Letterman. In I know, right? <laughs> Jeez, I'm trembling up here. Um, somebody get Jimmy a blanket. <laughs> what, what are some success stories that each of you have seen in the streaming space, whether it's like, you know, kind of the, the Spotify type of streaming or live streaming, or what are some cases where it really worked or went well? I think, you know, not, uh, you know, not to just kind of... Um, not to bag on music, but I think music is certainly still finding its way. I mean, I think, you know, music as a digestible, you know, piece of digital content is still, you know, a challenge. And I think for all the reasons that Greg pointed out, it's really hard to, uh, it's really hard to sponsor. It's hard to, it's hard to get people, uh, you know, locked down at a certain area or at a certain time. It's hard. It's very unlikely that if I got a text to go watch, you know, Henry Rollins on my phone right now, that I would be anywhere near somewhere that I wanted to go or I could go see it, you know, so start there. I mean, I think that's why VOD is so important. Um, but I think I do think like Vice Media and there are some great examples of great content. And you see, you know, where the big broadcasters are starting to claw back these digital rights. And we work with a lot of people besides, like, we, you know, we work with NASCAR. We work with a lot of big platforms, and digital rights are the holy grail right now. And you really see that it is, it's not about broadcast anymore. It is about solving for digital. And when you see, like, what Rain Group and what William Morris, IMG, uh, Vice Media, those people are doing. iHeart Media. Yeah, right. I, yeah. yeah, exactly. It starts to create a template, and I hate the word template, but it, it starts to create at least a template or a roadmap for what the music part of it could be. And I think that's where you're going to see most of the most of the road, you know, the progressive road being hoed is in those 
HBOs, the Vices, because they've got the bandwidth to do it. Yeah. I mean, a band out on the road, they've got to make a million decisions about, like, where they're going to eat at four in the morning. I mean, it's hard enough to find a restaurant open, let alone plan a digital strategy, right? Um, yeah. But, but you know, I do think um, it's encouraging what we're seeing. I think... Um, people are going to end up living there, right? They're going to live on that VOD. Like my daughter, I was telling the story, my daughter's 12 and she's a, <clears throat> she's a singer. She's a, she's a huge music fan. She's a huge, she does have David Bowie records. She's a huge David Bowie fan, but she, I was trying to explain to her about like how we used to listen to music and, I was telling her about the loop and listening to Chicago radio and, you know, WBEE and Harvey would come in on my radio, my jazz radio AM. And it would, you know, we'd sit there with the recorder and hit record when our song would come on and hope we didn't cut off the beginning. And like, hopefully the guy wouldn't start talking over the ending. And she just goes, you would sit there and wait for them to play a song. <laughs> I, I totally forgot. Like, I'm like, God, yeah, that's that's really stupid, right? <laughs> I, was I, 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 was like, I was like, yeah, yeah, sometimes for hours, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I mean, so you see like how far it can come, you know, just in, in one kind of next generation, it can form, you know, habits that last, you know, for generations and generations to come. And I think that's where, you know, the digital content is going to take us. I mean, as far as success stories, I don't think the I think the biggest success story really has nothing to do with music or sports or anything. It's you know broadcasting like newscasts, like when the Egyptian riots were going on, and like you know um, Ferguson and all that stuff, and like watching the live streams is like that's when you can get in and see the real news without it being skewed. You're talking about you, the citizen, yeah, the live citizen, the live streams on like yeah. Twitter and yeah. stream. Yeah, I think that is the most successful live stream. Is like people took it in their own hands, and like I was captivated because I was like learning what was going on via what's going on right now instead of like waiting to see what clips are edited and you know kind of you know I guess it was just raw, you know, versus you know the news always has an agenda of what how they want people to see the story and everything and this was like just from one person's they do? perspective yeah. <laughs> yeah, think so. yeah sometimes you wouldn't think that um, but you know like i think i think those those are the biggest success stories i think because i think that is where live streaming can come in really and be important is almost like radical journalism yeah, in a way. You're right. Yeah. That's bigger than Vice. Yeah. I agree yeah, with yeah. that. Um, I think, you know, accountability in, in reporting is extremely critical to, you know, the evolution of us as a society. I think, um, you know, if we can create that accountability in, in newscasting, I mean, I would be, you know, I would gladly, you yeah, know, yeah. sacrifice a lot for that. I yeah. mean, just think of the possibilities in a country full of truth and accountability versus kind of what we're spoon-fed uh, steady diet of over the kind of six or seven people that own all of the media sources. Yeah, yeah. So we're kind of winding it down a little bit in about five minutes, ten minutes. We're going to open it up to um, a couple audience questions. So I'm going to kind of start to wrap up. But, you know, I, we've covered this a little bit across the span of the conversation. But what are some areas that, you know, streaming, live streaming could be utilized, could be utilized more? Some of the some of the areas that, you know, we see it moving into next or where there's potential opportunity. I think for me, uh, probably the most exciting is education. I mean, I think, you know, for me, that's really, um, you know, I sit on the school board in, in Lake County for my kids' school. I've been on there for six years, and I'm a big uh, I'm a big believer in the evolution of academics and the anachronism of the current kind of ed educational model. Uh, so for, for Live One, it's just kind of my pet peeve or my pet project that, you know, I do want to have a hand in creating kind of what the modern digital classroom looks like. And again, you know, create that accountability through communication um, for young people uh, to really, um, you know, knock down the barriers of, you know, like just like the music business shouldn't be full of just rich kids, you know, education should be brought to potential thought leaders no matter where um, they live or where they happen to be born. Um, and I think that's exciting because then again, you know, for me, that accountability begets truth, begets a better world. And I'm not, you know, not to get on my kind of uh, school board high horse, but I really do think, you know, an, edu an educated, sophisticated society really trumps any type of military or economic might 
um, because you come, you become society unto yourselves, you know, through that kind of sophistication. So for me, I mean, that's really, I think the next, uh, and we're already looking at, you know, education. We've done some stuff with Berkeley School of Music. We're looking at some other, uh, some other kind of online educational um, platforms. But I think for me, that's probably that, you know, news and, and, and education, I think are probably the two most exciting verticals for, for crowd surfing. Yeah, I mean, imagine kids being able to get an education where they couldn't. You Absolutely. Know, like, in, in rural, yeah. like crazy countries that they just have a Wi-Fi signal they can, you know, learn how to speak English or learn math or whatever. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, somebody told me there's a there's an online, um, my son uh, Lucas is a gymnast, so we're always talking about Stanford because he wants to be on their gymnastics team. But we, we were looking at some online class that Stanford had put up. Uh, some professor on uh, political science had put up um, basically a test, and he, and he sent it out to anybody who basically wanted to fill it out. And the um, and I'm I'm telling kind of the Cliff Notes version of it, but the but the kind of the 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 um, <clears throat> the um, the result was that the um, out of all the test people that took the test, the f the first person uh, to the 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 first per the first person the 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 only the the in the ranking the first person from Stanford was like 40th in the test. Wow. So there was there was there was 39 other people that took this test that didn't go to Stanford just by nature of kind of how smart they were that ranked above the kids that were even in his class. So that shows you just the kind of disparate uh, breakdown and the lack of assessment um, out there with you know young people's ability to like I said foment opinions on really heady and kind of high level subject matter. Yeah. So just not to make this a pitch, but we're looking at, like I teach at Columbia, I'm gonna be online teaching this summer, and that's like a discussion we've had a lot is like, you know, online classes, how do you bring it into the 21st century? And me being really passionate about streaming, it's something that I'm super excited about. So so I think, you know, we can open it up to some audience Wait, we questions. didn't hear Greg's, what's exciting oh. for him. Oh, did we not? I, I thought we did, that. okay. I guess I don't know if I'm excited for it, but I think the future of it is people like curating their own streams or their own channels, kind of like how Facebook decides what you want to see in your feed by mm -hmm. what you Google and all that stuff. Um, I think it's going to turn out that way. They for, do. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's going to turn out that way for you know, like what you're into musically or in film-wise and everything. You know, like you can either create your own channel or one will be created for you. Yeah, you know, I think that's like kind of like the what the future is going to hold. Especially so, for TV, like, you know, like in consuming entertainment and everything. I think it's a great point, and not just to keep talking, but one of the things about being a musician that's so incredible right now is just the, the incredible amount of content out there for, like, a drummer. I mean, when I was a kid, if you wanted to learn, like, Ian Pace's crazy drum fill in some song, you basically had to go, like, up to the record and, like, slow the vinyl down and, like, just so you'd go, doo -doo 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 -doo, and you could sort the drum fill out. Or the VHS tape and pause it. <laughs> right? I mean, now, like, I can go on YouTube and all those drum beats that I couldn't do before, I can get, like, a master class doing it. I mean, so that, like, first-person analysis or that first-person as a, another teaching tool is incredible. And they're seeing, like, at least I am, because I'm still really well and really uh, heavily involved in the drum community, that... Um, yeah, there's just some kids out there that just have blistering chops right now, and it's just because they've just been sponges about all the all the available resources YouTube, out there, man. right? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, everything. That's not just. I mean, everything. Like whether they're a video editor or a singer or a drummer or like whatever. It's like yeah. you can learn so much through YouTube versus going to school for it. Yeah. Well, I always tell my students, like you know, again, not to, not to hijack this. I tell my students at Columbia, I'm like, you don't know how amazing it is that you have access to like YouTube. And you can create content on Tumblr and on YouTube and on SoundCloud and on Instagram. And it's something that, you know, I think all of us, not I'm not singling out my students, all of us take for granted that we have these things now. But it's incredible. Like, if you want to start a video series, a podcast, a blog, a photo, you know, whatever, it's out there. And it's yeah. free. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I think it's a great point. I think Ray Kurzweil was saying that... Um, uh, that uh, digital, um, <clears throat> that uh, the web has given uh, has freed up so much of our brain space because now we don't have to concern ourselves with like 
what year Lincoln was shot or like all that stuff. Like my brother and I would have a bet like, oh, he was a 65 or, you know, 60, 1865. And then somebody would go to the library <laughs> and then they'd get the book and then they call and I wouldn't be home or I'd know it was him and I wouldn't answer. And it just, you know, and it would be weeks, you know. And I now mean, what about what about a writing report in school? What we yeah, had to do? Yeah, right. No I mean, computers, yeah, no uh, like searching. You had to go like, like the photocopy. How many times can you copy the same encyclopedia, right? I mean, oh, it's just nauseating. Um, but yeah, I mean, and now, you know, that stuff is so, and, and my, my kids don't make any bones about going and just finding information, whereas before it was like, ooh, is it illegal to look it up? You know, remember? Um, but, uh, but now, I mean, their brains are so free to just do, you know, all this other stuff. Yeah. No, I think it's amazing. I mean, we've covered some really great content, and I think it really even, even became a conversation bigger than just music, just streaming, just a lot of really cool ideas. Um, Let's open it up. If anybody from the audience has any questions, we can have you guys step up here, I think is how JBTV wanted to do it. And um, There's like hundreds of people out here. Too. Yeah. Like, do we have a mic? Do we have a fourth mic? We or? got a mic over okay, here, so, right here. So if you want to come up. Yeah, I get this one first. And then you'll be on the stream and on the podcast, just FYI. I think so. Uh, my name is Flo. I was a music major in college and all throughout high school. And my first... My, my love was music and the idea of me playing it. And I get to lots of huge debates about people equating music to the future of music, which is it playing it for you, teaching you how to do it because you're not capable of learning that way. And my issue is, one of my issues has always been, I spent years of perfecting my craft and I find it a perversion for people to say, just because I don't learn that way doesn't mean that I'm not a musician because this computer taught me how to do so. And I say, well, you're wrong, you're not a musician, because the whole point or the technical crap is me spending the years I spent, I'm a musician, because you learned it in 25 minutes because of this application, or this application helped you. Not saying that what you did wasn't great, yep. it's not the same thing as what I did. So my question is, how do you motivate the people who have spent their life learning music so that they can, they, they love it and they wanna, you know, do all the things that is to inspire someone to be a great musician without taking away the progression that is the future and technology in front of them. How do you make people understand both sides of it? Because I, I mean, I have a hard time defending myself, not because I can't feel like I defend myself, but I feel I understand their plight of not being full, them not having the skills or the mental capacity or certain learning things that keep them from able to play music like other musicians learn it. And I don't want to demean them from learning a craft and learning it differently, but I don't want them to equate it to them being a musician at the same time. How would you separate those two things, or at the very least, how would you the sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think um, for me, um, you know, I think uh, any resources are good resources and I don't have any problem with anybody learning and using the maximum amount of resources to learn an instrument because once you play an instrument, you realize how, how, how ridiculously difficult it is anyway, no matter what kind of tool you have. And believe me, you know, whether it's Stravinsky or Bowie or you or myself, I mean, I was using the maximum amount of resources that were available to me at the time. And if there were more, I would have used them. I mean, there's no, look, for me, music is not about, um, and this is kind of, you know, I do clinics, I do master classes, I do basic stuff. And it's like, what I tell my students is that, look, you know, there's only one reason to practice technique, and you can be a great technician, but for me, the reason we play technical things is to get what's here out to our instrument, right? Our instrument becomes our painting, our paintbrush. Technique is the paintbrush by which we make the painting, but the paint, the painting is the most important. How we say, what we say, what what's the point of it, um, and all that stuff, all the tools in your toolbox are there to make a great painting. I feel like the modern, uh, the modern digital tools, like, like I want to hear the next Buddy Rich. I want to hear the next Bob Dylan. And I think all the things that you're talking about may get us closer to that day just because it starts to compress all that time. I mean, I spent so much time, like years and years, practicing, you know, stick control, syncopation, all these crazy books. I mean... Believe me, you as learn that overnight, no matter what. Yeah, well, but know? still, I mean, there's 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 things now that allow you to, like you said, compress that time and yeah. kind of get to where you need to get to faster. And again, I'm not a big stickler on technique. I love a lot of sloppy musicians who don't know what they're doing on an instrument, just because I'm more of an identity guy. Like if I can tell who somebody is just by listening to them, then they've done their job. Like I'm I'm about like. 
I want to hear three notes and know it's know it's Greg, you know, because he's got such an identity on an instrument. All that technical stuff, eh, I'm not really that caught up in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just like, you know, growing up, I mean, there was a kid I, I grew up with, never took lessons, never did anything. He could play drums, he could play bass, he could play guitar better than all my friends. Didn't go to school for it or anything. Me, I had to practice every day, get tablature, like, and it took me forever to get an ear to be able to hear it like, oh, that's in tune, you know? Like, it took me forever. But does that make, like, it, it's just the same now. It's like, oh, a kid can learn this overnight and be great, or it could take them years, and the end result is, is sometimes better or worse on, on either side. So there's no right or wrong way. And... Um, it's not, there's nothing like, nothing's fair in, you know, like music. It's like there's, there's no right or wrong way to like write a song or play an instrument, you know, and, and the, the people with like the whole theory thing and everything, I never really believed in that. It's like, just do like what Jimmy said, like get the song out. That's the most important, like get your emotion out, you know, whether it's just you playing an instrument, it could be somebody else's part that was already written, but how you attack it, you know, makes, gives you your identity. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, nobody, nobody looked at, you know, the Statue of David and went, oh, man, that guy, used to, he lived right down the street from a marble quarry. Or Van Gogh, like, hey, he lived next, next door to the guy who made paintbrushes, right? It's like, nah. But, I mean, I think you do have a point where, you know, like definitely with, you know, writing music on computers and stuff, like, you know, I've seen even bands come in here before that have never played a live show ever you know, until they got a record deal and then start touring, you know. Um, but the bands that are going to stay around a long time are the ones that are live bands, you know, because it's a culture and that culture still exists. And like, you know, just because a kid learns something overnight and if he plays well, but if he just knows that one song or that one part, it's he's not going to have a future either. So, you know, like being well-rounded like yourself, you're going to have a longer career, a longer life. Yeah. So let's take one more question because I know we got to wrap it up by 8 o'clock. Uh, so one more question. We'll have someone come up here. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I just had a question for Jimmy if you were going to ever uh, do another Pumpkins album in the future. <laughs> of course. Who let this guy out Get this guy out of here. I actually have a better question. <laughs> no, but another question. You don't have to answer that. Um, well, Scott Weiler and I, I heard on um, Howard Stern had said that he has to play so many shows nowadays, like they can't make the money. And it, cutting into said that? yeah, cutting into the time of writing the actual music and how you maybe you guys felt about artists that uh, maybe are spending too much time on the road and how it's affecting music in general. I mean, it's like, ever... like it's the financial, the economics of it. Like I said, like um, you know, that's kind of like the last way for an artist to make money um, because. You know, even merch sales have gone down a lot. I mean, when you go to a festival, how many concert T-shirts do you see? Barely any, you know? And there's, you know, 100,000 people there. You know, I went to Pitchfork one year, and I saw two concert T-shirts. And they were both concert T-shirts from American Apparel, not American Apparel, but uh, Urban Outfitters. You know, so it's like that, that whole entire kind of like part of rock and roll is like that's what you did when you went to a concert when I was growing up. You got a T-shirt so you can prove that you were there, you know? Now it's just... Oh, selfie, I'm at the show. You know, that's, that's more important than actually being and experiencing the show sometimes. Um, so for an artist, you know, like the playing live is the only way they can really make money, and even that's dropping down. So I can understand what Scott Weiland's going through. It's like it's, it's hard to be in that creative space, even if you're Scott Weiland. You know, imagine an even band that doesn't have the resources he has or even a live fan base like he has. Like how long it takes... For a band to, I mean, like the cure. I mean, it's like, would there be a cure now? It's like, how many albums it took them to write Just Like Heaven, you know? And it, it's like, no one would have that, uh, from, definitely from a record label, that kind of patience. So I think it's, it's harder and harder every year to, to be in a band and be an artist. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first off, Scott should just get back with Stone Temple, man, because they were a great band, dude. Um, but, yeah, and I think they're working right now with a new singer, um, and they've got some new stuff coming out that I hear is really great. Um, but Scott's a great, uh, great performer and um, uh, old friend. Um, but I think, you know, look, 
music or the business of music, or as it is now, the, 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 it used to be the music business, now it's the business music. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of inverted, um, it seems to. Like music and being an artist is a consuming thing, right? It's something that consumes you. And it's, it's, it's really, when economics come into play, you start talking about a different type of thing. Um, for me, you know, and I'm not like trying to go, oh, in the old days, blah, blah, blah. But really, for me, playing music wasn't, an, there wasn't no option. There wasn't like, it didn't, the economics weren't something I thought about. I lived in my car. I only dated girls with apartments. I mean, it was like, I mean, that's what you had to do to play, right? Yeah. But it was like, for me, all I thought about it was the gig, man. It was like getting to the gig, like playing with the pumpkins at the Metro was such a cool, visceral experience. Like, I didn't care that Corgan and I were like sharing a can of beefaroni. It wasn't, that wasn't even part of it. Like, it was such a small part of my life. And I'm not saying that kids, you know, oh, they got it so easy, you know. It's not really like that. But if you truly want to be an artist, you got to understand that it's going to be a consuming event in your life. It's going to consume all of it's going to it's uh, not it's, a choice. No, it's going yeah, to influence yeah. all of your decisions and you're going to be okay with it. And if you're not okay with it, then you're something else. And I'm not saying you're not an artist, but maybe you just don't want you just don't get that thing from art. I mean for me it's like People used to say, uh, oh, hey, man, what, would you, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't playing at uh, United Center or Madison Square Garden? And I'd be like, fuck, I'd be playing some shitty club for free. That's what I was doing before. I mean, I never not... The thirsty whale. <laughs> yeah, right, I'd be playing the whale, man. Um, but I, I never not played. Um, even when I was playing, you know, I played in a polka band uh, on Sunday afternoons or Saturdays. I played in the span JP and the Cats. It was... You know, you could look at it any way. It, kind of, it was a miserable experience. Or I got to play 30 shows a month, which right. was, you know, great. I mean, working on my chops, that type of stuff. Um, you know, again. And it all made you a better I think, player. I yeah. think you got to ask yourself, like, what's, what's, what part of the deal am I holding up? What do I need from this? Because for me, like, music is a very, what I get from it is very internal. Um, I don't really, for me, just my relationship with music as a whole is very internal. I can get what I need from music in my own studio in the morning, just playing a drum solo or playing with friends. The other stuff is a different relationship. What I get from supporting my family being a musician and what I get from being kind of Jimmy, the, the public figure, is a different, is a different covenant um, than me, than I have with my drum set. So, you know, you have to figure out kind of the murkiness and all that stuff, find out what the destination is, and then identify kind of what the parameters for success are going to be. For, because for some people, parameters of success could be playing the Thirsty Whale, and they figure they've made it. For other guys, it's like standing on top of the mountain. But still, the, the, the deal with the music, I think, stays the same. Nice. Well, I know, we know gotta, we're out of time, right? <laughs> yeah. I know we got to wrap it up by uh, 8 o'clock, and we're still a few minutes early. But uh, I want to get a lot of people to thank here, uh, not least of all, Jimmy Chamberlain and Greg Cornell. Let's give it up for them tonight. <clears throat> um, I want to thank um, D. Case, Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, for um, allowing Dynasty Podcast to be part of the Creatives at Work series that they host every month, um, Chicago Music Commission. JBTV for hosting us here and really setting us up with such an amazing setup here. JBTV. Yeah. That's Jerry incredible. Bryant, give it up. Jerry Bryant doing doing the Lord's work. Yeah. Um, my name talk, is, talk about sacrifice. And I've known oh, Jerry yeah. since I've known Jerry since 1990. 90? Yeah, probably 90. Oh man, yeah. He's been fighting the good fight forever. Oh yeah, he has. Yeah. Uh, my name is Haima Black. I host Dynasty Podcast. Thank you guys all for coming out. Thank you for everyone who watched this live, uh, who's hearing it later as a podcast. And again, thank you, gentlemen and audience, for being part of this. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Haima. And cut. This has been the Dynasty Podcast panel cast series. Thanks to Jimmy Chamberlain of Live One Inc. and Greg Corner of JBTV for being on the show this week and to the City of Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events Office for having Dynasty Podcasts as part of their Creatives at Work panel series. You can find more live podcasts and panels at DynastyPodcast.com. For the Dynamic Dynasty, my name is Haima Black. Dynasty Descend.